Welcome to A Movie and an Argument with Alyssa and Swin. I'm Alyssa Rosenberg, the culture critic at Think Progress, and I'm here today with... Aswin Subseng, but please call me Swin. I'm the interactive fellow and movie guy at Mother Jones Magazine's DC Bureau. Welcome to the show. Well, and before we start talking about any other movies today, I think we have to, uh, I have to extend congratulations to my colleagues at Mother Jones for um, the video clip of the week, uh, you know, Mitt Romney and the 47% uh, dancers or something. I think that's what it's called. Uh, <laughs> but my understanding oh, is... Oh, come on. Uh, please, keep going. No, no, no. But um, in all seriousness, I think you guys have unearthed something that really sort of ties together um, the themes and resonances of this election and that will have a really powerful impact. So congratulations. It's always uh, it's always wonderful to see the folks over in the political department recognize the power of cinema. <laughs> I... Oh, come on. This is a movie and pop culture podcast. Let's not talk about Mitt Romney. Although it was probably the most entertaining thing I've seen all week. So I think it does qualify in right. the entertainment. I mean, Laura Hudson, uh, the founder of Comics Alliance, suggested that someone do a shot-by-shot uh, -shot comparison of Mitt Romney and the Beast from um, Trans from Transmetropolitan. So I think that might be have to be something that we work on for later in the season. Pop culture can make its contributions, too. Um in any case, it's lovely to be back with you since we are entering the sort of rich and juicy part of the movie season. Mm -hmm. And I was off Rosh Hashanah with half of the Mother Jones staff on Monday when you saw The Master, which I am really excited to hear about. It m might be the first huge major best picture bait that's out right now. Peter Travers at Rolling Stone just declared it a new American classic, which he did with Paul Thomas Anderson's previous movie, there Will Be Blood, which I loved, mm. and he's hardly the only like major league critic out there, or at least or a big-name critic, who's lavishing praise on this movie. Um, but enough about that. What did you yeah, think of I, it? Well, here's the thing. I want to first caveat this with I'm a huge, huge, huge Paul Thomas Anderson fan. I think he's one of the best writer directors out there and of our generation, if we can call him of our generation. I think he's young enough. And... I adore, adore, adore movies like Magnolia and There Will Be Blood. Having said that, I was really let down by The Master. And not because I had, like, unwarranted expectations. I genuinely thought it was one of the most impressive mess mm. ever to come. Like, it, it was close to mediocre, almost. Wow. Like, I don't want to go... Like, it was hovering in, like, the C, C-plus range. For me, and I, I was almost heartbroken. It's like when Pixar came out with a bad movie with Cars 2 last year. Yeah. I don't know what to do with myself. Wow. What, I mean, what made it disappointing? Was it sort of a gap between your expectations of what Anderson movies typically are and the result? Was it just, yeah, I mean, talk me through that a little bit more. Well, first of all, I'll talk about what the, I'll say what the movie's about uh, for people who don't know. It stars Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman in a Scientology-inspired kind of like dual character study. Joaquin Phoenix is this um, booze hound, skirt-chasing, um, kind of shell-shocked um, World War II Navy vet. Okay. Comes back uh, to mainland USA, can't hold down a job, and he bumps into um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character who's based inspired by l ron hubbard on a boat and they start this journey together that's uh reliably dramatic and um there's a lot of shouting on both their ends also drinking paint thinner and, i understand uh there was stuff from like a 
torpedo from a submarine. I don't know. I mean, I will admit to being Catholic in what I drink, but that sounded like a a libation too far. Yeah, there's a little bit of focus on that in the movie. And there's a lot of beautiful photography, a lot of um, intended, obvious symbolism, a a few great dramatic scenes of like engrossing, pitch-perfect dialogue, particularly between the two leads. And uh, Amy Adams, who plays uh, the wife of the L. Ron Hubbard character. I mean, is Amy Adams ever bad in anything? I adore uh, her. Um, leap Year. Yeah, I mean, Leap Year is... That doesn't count, everybody. Right. I mean, I feel like all actresses are la- allowed one divergence into terrible romantic comedy land, and this mm. may have been hers, but um, yeah, I adore her. Yes, as do I. And, like, everything seems right for the movie. The cast, the writer-director, Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead doing the score as he did with There Will Be Blood. And just so much of it drags. Mm. And it's going to be acclaimed and dissected in film classes, like, from here to eternity, for, I think, all the wrong reasons. It has a lot of, like, somber, monotone symbolism and long meditative stretches in it that are going to be overinterpreted just because they look like they need to be overinterpreted. At least that's how I felt about it, of course. It there was nothing exciting in like how contemplative it was as like for example, PT Anderson's last movie There Will Be Blood was like there was a lot of energy charged in even the quiet moments. This I felt like just was completely dragging even with the pacing Mm. just it's a film almost as if it was made for people in film studies in college and i just did not feel that way about any of pt anderson's other movies and a, a quick note on expectations for people who are watching the ads and thinks that this is there will be Scientology because that's how they're marketing it. Right. They're marketing it to look a lot like that. Like they have images of Amy Adams and Joaquin Phoenix holding and in the case of Adams firing a gun that is not in the movie. Like I, I don't think a single gun is shown held or shot in the movie. They're trying to make you think that there's going to be a big killing at the end, literally, but there isn't. So even if you do like it, um, be aware or be advised that it's nothing like it's advertised on TV. Can I pivot from um, that? Because, inter- I mean, I haven't seen The Master yet. I'm looking forward to seeing it this weekend. But everything you're saying about it reminds me of certain things about End of Watch, um, which is uh, David Iyer, the Training Day writer's um, movie with Michael Pena and Jake Gyllenhaal as members of the LAPD. And much like The Master, it's a movie that I think is being extremely deceptively uh, advertised. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, I mean, they're setting it up as sort of these two cops were the lords of the streets until they became the cartels, public enemy number one, blah, blah, blah. It's being advertised as sort of a violent, stereotypical cop movie. And the thing about it is it's not that at all. It's actually this lovely sort of contemplative movie about the relationship between these two men. Um, The cartel stuff is maybe 15% of the film, Mm. and much of it is Gyllenhaal and Pena, both of whom are just fabulous. I mean, knocked down, this lovely, driving around in their squad car talking about stuff. And you talked about the master sort of dragging in a lot of sections. And one of the things that I think is really impressive about End of Watch, which is based on an extremely tightly written script rather than improvised... um, Mm-hmm. is how much of those conversations are just fascinating and really warm and funny. Um, it's a movie where 
both Pena and Gyllenhaal get to be sort of three tool players. They shoot a gun, they kiss a girl, they crack a joke. Um, and, you know, it was a movie that I had essentially no expectations of whatsoever, given the way that it had been advertised. But it's these two men sort of talking about masculinity. What does it mean to be a hero? Gyllenhaal's character, um, Brian, is, you know, sort of a very smart guy who is a veteran um, and is sort of in law school is the implication at the beginning of the movie. And he and Pena's character spend a lot of time talking about, you know, what kind of relationship Brian is looking for. Because mm-hmm. Pena's character, Michael, um, is very happily married, but, you know, married right out of high school in the academy, right out of high school. Um, part of this big extended Mexican immigrant family. And there's this, I mean, there's this scene where <laughs> they're just driving around in the cop car and Hall sort of describes, Brian, sorry, describes his, you know, his problems dating in LA. He says, you know, date one, dinner and respectful kiss. Date two, dinner and full carnal knowledge. Date three, dinner and awkward silence when I try to discuss anything of merit. So it's this movie about these two tough cops, one of whom really just wants to be with a girl that he can talk to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and much of the movie chronicles his romance with, um, a young scientist played by Anna Kendrick, who he eventually marries. I mean, this is a movie that spans like two years. And it's this, you know, it's almost the treme of cop movies. It's sort of loose. It's not particularly plot determined. And it's totally lovely. Um, and so it's the kind of thing where I can totally see why they're using the deceptive advertising to get people in the door. Like, Absolutely. you yeah. know, Jake Gyllenhaal is badass cop. will sell a lot more tickets than, you know, this is an exploration of American masculinity and policing um yeah because but but it's at least what people get in the door for is mm. really lovely at least it's good you know yeah at least there's that yeah i mean but about the advertisement i mean i confess i haven't seen the movie i haven't had time to make it to any of the screens here in dc but the tv spots and the trailers definitely make it like it's identical to keanu reeves street kings yeah absolutely like i mean grind with better handheld camera work right but it's not that at all but I mean, and I'm relieved a, to hear that. I, I haven't read much about the movie, so I, I got to jump on it now. It's the kind of thing that I think, in part because of its advertising campaign, is kind of flying under the radar. But for both Pena and Hall, it should be, I think, really career-changing. It should be, if it's mm-hmm. seen as the movie that it actually is, instead of through the lens of an expectations gap, should be a movie that significantly changes both Hall and Pena's careers. I mean, Hall has been... In this sort of funny space for a while, right? I mean, he's done brilliant indie stuff like Donnie Darko. Um, he's been sort of unsuccessful as positioning himself as an adult love interest. And he looks, you know, he's got a shaved head here. He's kind of ripped. Um, his sense of his character's sense of humor is a little puerile. But, um, I mean, it just, it's wonderfully grown-up acting from both Pena and Hall. And, you know, I... I hope it gets the audience it deserves. That's the thing that's hard, right? I mean, you love these things, and sometimes not everybody else loves them, too. Right. And it's... Um, so, I, I, I gotta keep a running tabs, a running list of all the Oscar bait that's coming out this fall. So that is much de- Oscar bait. That is deceptively advertised. Specifically the ones that are, are <laughs> made to look like what they aren't. Because it's yeah. like... 
uh, movies like Lincoln and Les Mis. It's not like you can deceptively advertise those, and not like you would want to. I mean, unless, like unless Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner have secretly made the second the sequel to Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, which uh, I have to say, Tony Kushner would do a bang-up job. I, with. <laughs> I, not arguing with you there, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm gonna start writing lists at least on Twitter. Deceptively advertise Oscar bait of 2012. <laughs> um, so speaking of deceptively uh, advertised Oscar bait of 2012, um, you saw Trouble with the Curve last. Not time. deceptively advertised. Not deceptively advertised. It is in fact a baseball movie. Well, it's advertised as like Clint Eastwood is a baseball scout, right? And he's going on a road trip with his. And he is in fact a baseball scout going on a road trip with his daughter. Um, yes, They're yeah, no- and, ju- and Justin. Timberlake shows up. Or it's not actually a road trip. They go to like one town on right. one scout mission. It's uh, so it's about baseball in the same way Charlie's Angels is about law enforcement. I, I, I stole that line from whoever wrote the advertising for Aaron Sorkin's Sports Night on ABC. But still, <laughs> it's a good line. Um, well, have you seen Trouble with the Curve? Did not you yet. To... Um, I'm, I'm going to have to grade it on a curve because of expectations <laughs> Or between will, this and the master. Will the curve be hanging or not? Uh, I'm not sure, but... Sorry, baseball joke. Yeah, I I must confess, I know nothing about baseball, so I'm going to seem like a, like a deer or a doe in the headlights. It's okay, I can, I can walk you through this. I'm happy to hold your <laughs> Thank hand. Thank you so much. But, no, I, I actually, I don't think it has anything to do with um, measuring expectations. I genuinely think I like trouble with the curve more than the master because it had fewer problems. Mm. And... I, the only reason to make the comparison, I think, is because um, uh, Amy Adams is in both movies. Yeah. Uh, so I had two back-to-back days of Amy Adams screenings. So it was great. And here she's the opposite of her character in The Master. She's not somber. She's not quiet. She's not the wife of Philip Seymour Hoffman as L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> she is this like high-powered type A personality attorney. Mm. Um living in Georgia, who uh, hears that her father, played by Clint Eastwood, who's an aging uh, baseball scout who's being threatened by these young guns coming in who use computers, which he doesn't even know how to use to like try to figure out who's the best baseball player to recruit and whatever. And she hears from his doctor that he has glaucoma. But mm. in pure Clint Eastwood fashion, he's not admitting it. Of course. And so uh, she goes with him to this town to check out this um, supposed, like, hotshot player, see if they can recruit him for the Braves. I believe the Braves. I think that's the team Clint Eastwood is repping in this. Um, And it is really a story about uh, them reconnecting. And I'm I'm assuming the player is a hitter who can't can't hit curveballs, and Clint Eastwood is a man who's unable to deal with the unexpected in his own life. I... You... You... Decoded the movie for me. I've been trying to figure out that out the whole time, but it's. <laughs> but yeah, I think you should see it because aside from an ending that is too tidy for comfort, you know those endings that make of you course. cringe because everybody you like finds success That's and it. love, it, except for those last like ten, fifteen minutes, maybe twenty minutes, not ten or fifteen minutes. It's a genuinely charming, funny feel-good movie in all the right ways. And this is the first movie in a while that Clint Eastwood stars in that he did not direct himself. Yeah. And 
I try not to mean this in a bad way, but it shows. And I kind of do mean in the bad way in the sense that I think most movies would be better if Clint Eastwood directed them. But he clearly didn't direct this one. It has sure. the same typeface in the opening and closing credits. But other than that, it doesn't have his oomph in the directorial uh, well, one of the things I think is funny, I mean, there are going to be so many Eastwood empty chair jokes oh, that we're God. all going to be desperately sick of them. Shoot. But the great Clint Eastwood joke, just long term, is in In and Out, which is from the late 90s, um, mm-hmm. which, which has a fake Oscar ceremony that has Glenn Close announcing the best actor candidates and starts out sort of making the point that so many of the nominees are old. It's, you know, Gene Hackman is coot, Clint Eastwood in codger. <laughs> you know... One of the things that I find fascinating about Eastwood, and I, you know, I enjoy the man's work, is that he's his entire career is essentially telling people to get off his lawn, you know. The <laughs> uh, same thing for this movie. I'm going and uh, I'm going to tell you why after. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I am content to watch the man do his thing as long as he's telling people to get off his lawn in slightly different fashion each time. Um, so I am I am looking forward to it, especially now that my Beloved Boston Red Sox have imploded so spectacularly that they <laughs> the black hole that they've created for themselves may consume the entire New England region. So I will be looking forward to Trouble with the Curve. Absolutely, but take it's a good date movie. I think. I hope. Um, I wouldn't know because my girlfriend doesn't like these types of movies. But it's about the chair joke stuff. I think I'm going to devote half of my review to stop making Clint Eastwood empty chair jokes in your reviews. Most film critics are not funny, and is, they're making the most obvious cheap shot joke. That's true. I have to say, I think of film critics who are funny, Anthony Lane is really funny, but only when he's mean. I think he'll be mean to this yeah, movie. He's if, a, if he's he a even mean, funny it. guy. So. Yeah, I'll give him that. I, I got nothing really against Anthony Lane. He's got Right. I mean, he has, his, he has his unfortunate, <laughs> sad prejudices. Yeah. I mean, among other things, he doesn't mm-hmm. like any fun, but... Uh, the man can be funny when he's angry. Absolutely. But let me give you a taste of um, what you were talking about, how every Clint Eastwood movie these days, or maybe ever, is Get Off My Lawn. Yes. Um, I, I made a list throughout the movie of the most Clint Eastwoody, Clint Eastwood lines <gasps> in the movie. And I'm going to preview a few of them here. There are many, many more that I'm going to write up for Friday. But there's when he's trying to back out of a garage and his glaucoma is making him crash, he says, a bunch of goddamn midgets built this garage. And there's a part when he's going to the bathroom, where he's talking to his penis and says, um, don't laugh. I outlived you, you little bastard. And one more. I think my... you just broke me. I don't really want to think about Clint Eastwood talking to his penis. Well, it happens within the first 30 seconds of the movie. How so are just, you, just how close How are you going to make your... this up to me, Swin? Okay, one more. One more, which is my favorite line in the movie. I think this will make you forget. Clint Eastwood saying, in trouble with the curve, when asked why is there wood piled atop his couch that he wasn't able to build because of the glaucoma, that's Fang Shmei. Don't you know anything? <laughs> God. Well, I don't think we can top Clint Eastwood's penis. Um, <laughs> well, you know, let, let's try. Let's uh, wipe that from the minds for a minute. And uh, I brought up Boardwalk Empire last week, and you have caught up on the first two episodes. Yeah, I mean, I just don't care about Nucky Thompson, right? I mean, mm. your tolerance for sort of generic gangsters looking good and causing mayhem is much higher than mine. Controlled mayhem on yes. HBO, yes. starring Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Executive produced by Martin Scorsese. I like all those things. Yes, you, I mean, each of us are predictable in our own way. Each uh, each unhappy 
critic is predictable in their own way. <laughs> um, and I, mean, I just, I don't really care, right? <laughs> I mean, I, Nucky Thompson can do his thing, but I would infinitely rather watch a show about Richard Harrow or Chalky White or Margaret Schroeder, um, all of whom I think have really interesting arcs this season. Um, you know, we're seeing Margaret sort of take up this campaign for maternal health. We're seeing Richard essentially stepping up and raising Angela and Jimmy's son, who has been reappropriated by Jillian Darmody, who can we say she's the creepiest bad mother on television? I think Jillian's the yes. creepiest bad mother. On Maybe television. it's time for some season two spoilers. Yes. Um, I mean, there's just like there is. I feel like she and Cersei Lannister are competing for who's the creepiest incestuous mother. And yes. I never thought I would say this about Cersei Lannister, who had two kids with her own brother. But I think Jillian Darmody is scarier. Um, mm-hmm. And. That is interesting to observe. Um, and but then... There's not enough of it for you. Right. And one of the things that's coming up... I mean, Chalky was absent from the third season premiere, which is always just like a big farewell for me. If there's no Chalky White, yeah. my interest in Boardwalk Empire is down like 65%. That's understandable. I think it's quantifiable. Because that... Chalky White is awesome. Yeah, that was one of my like two... Only two complaints in my review of this third season of the show is that... It, um, not enough Chalky. The, the first five episodes, not just the first two, but the first five, there isn't nearly enough about Chalky and his family. Right. The, the amount mean, there is is very good and solid. Like, it has to do with his um, daughter, and he's trying to get her to marry this, like, straight-laced doctor who she yeah. doesn't want to marry because she thinks he's not interesting. No, I mean, as a show within the show, the stuff with Chalky about sort of the rise of a black upper middle class on the East coast Mm. Um, sort of in this particular time period. That is one of the shows that is sort of on my, this will never happen, but Oh, how I wish it would list. Um, She Hulk, the five hour epic motion picture. (laughs) Hey, you know, you could dual market that stuff. I would watch it. I'm yes. I'm glad you would. Um, You can be my date to the premiere when I saw my movie. Um, But you know, I mean, all of this stuff is just more specific and interesting than anything Ch- than anything Nucky is up to. Mm-hmm. And that lack of specificity, Nucky is, you know, the question of whether you can be half a gangster is super dramatic, but it's also pretty bland and generic. Right, but they did answer the question at the very end of season two, two. when right. he killed right. Darmody. He, and like, now straight kills Jimmy Darmody. It's... Now it's not a question. He's just a full gangster. Right, and like, who cares, right? I care. I mean, it's a full gangster with good dialogue. It's not even good dialogue. Oh, come on. It's great. You don't think it's sharp? You don't think it? No, I don't. I'm sorry. What what do you find bland about it? I mean, I wish I had a list here of like the great diction in the show, not just like the tenor of the characters' voices, but also the word choice. I'm not saying anyone in the show is performing poorly or Mm. that it doesn't look good. I just don't care. Like... Okay, yes, Bobby Cannaval being intimidating over spaghetti and coffee in a New Jersey diner is like, that's reasonably amusing to watch, but it's only reasonably amusing. Mm -hmm. I just like, these people are going to keep hacking each other up and beating each other to death on roadsides and shooting each other at each other's front doors. And, you know, go with God. Like, I just, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, you know, it's just there's nothing specific enough about them to hold my attention. Hmm. I 
I can't say I agree. I, I think they're rich characters but who what, are driven like by... Give me a detail. What about Nucky specifically is interesting to you? It's that particularly with this season, with the introduction of his new mistress, more so than any other season, and there's been like glaring tinges of this in the two previous seasons, that the running theme of guilt without redemption and living by the anxieties that come with all this booze and but like, what, blood, it's but what, he... he the new mistress reveals that Nucky is a terribly lonely soul for however much avarice and um, success he has. He like, never has fulfillment. And but, but every gangster story has the middle-aged gangster with the younger, prettier mistress who's like kind of a shot of life, but it reveals that the rest of his life is a lie. I mean, again, give me something about Nucky Thompson that's different about somebody else. That's different? Yeah. I want to know what specifically Other- about Nucky Thompson makes you tick. Hmm. I, I, that is a fair question, but also I think it's important to acknowledge that if we start talking about archetypes and like typical characteristics and story elements, we're going to have to start bashing Casablanca and movies like that really soon. There's always like, there's only so many stories you can do. Sure. But I I mean, Casablanca, you know, what I watched Casablanca relatively late in life. I mean, I must've been my teens. And one of the things that's funny about watching Casablanca is that you hear all of these things that are cli- that feel to you like they're cliches, which of course are not cliches. You're just hearing them in the place where they originated. Play it again, okay. Sam. Beautiful friendship. That's true. All That's of this true. stuff. But, I mean, but not not to dodge your question. I, I'm answering your question. Sure. Um, at least one thing. I'm sure there are others, but I have to actually sit down and think about it for a minute. I don't want to waste listeners' time. Is the Nucky going full gangster by the beginning of season three? You really watching the evolution of that going from a man who's corrupt and hasn't really ordered the killing of anybody to someone who absolutely does, who seemingly does it without flinching, is very interesting to watch. That thing over two or three years. like you. I guess so. I mean, not to call Willow Rosenberg on it, but like, bored now. <laughs> it just... You don't, you don't like the Shakespearean heft of a man of I don't power think, I don't in think, the 19th... 19- I mean, but I... Okay, so this is... Maybe this is the best way of explaining what I feel about Boardwalk Empire. Boardwalk Empire is a show that has mistaken a small petty man for a big one. He's, I don't think they've mistaken him for someone who isn't small in many ways. Emotionally, as I was talking about how you see the loneliness in Steve Buscemi's eyes constantly during right, each think, season. But, I think but he's succumbing. big. I mean, I think the this sort of succumbing to violence is sort of inevitable in a small, petty, nasty little way. And... I'm just not that moved by it. I mean, mm-hmm. I I am moved by Jimmy Jarmody's walk towards death. His sort of... I mean, Jimmy sort of effectively commits suicide last season. Um, That's another great thing about the show. He was rotting emotionally for two years. Right. And I do, I do think it was... It took a certain amount of chutzpah to get rid of Jimmy and just sort of to mm-hmm. follow the emotional authenticity of that character's arc. But then again, Jimmy is this very specific, interesting figure we haven't seen a lot in our popular culture, right? I mean, we... And the sort of inter the interwar period in general is one that is not particularly well documented and explored in our popular culture. But Jimmy was this very specific figure. He was someone... And in a way, as long as he was in the show... Nucky and Chalky's stories were much more complimentary, right? Because mm-hmm. both Nucky and Chalky are trying to get people in their families to raise themselves up. Right. That, you know, 
um, Nucky sort of effectively purchased the education that he wished he'd had for Jimmy. Um, and then it wasn't really a fit for who Jimmy was, you know, um, Chalky is encouraging his daughter to sort of marry up, even if the man isn't who she wants. And, you know, there were interesting parallels there that have since been somewhat broken. Mm. And I think that the show sort of got itself in a bind where it did this thing that was very emotionally true to this character, but that got the show away from some of what made it specific and powerful. And I think that, you know, that was something they were just stuck with and it's a loss. You know, I I think that's tricky for them. I think they did the right thing by that character and by that arc. But I think they're they're flailing a little bit in the wake of Jimmy's death. Hmm. The only way I think they're flailing is that there isn't enough Chalky White. I think he could easily be worked into the show. And he's such a tremendous, compelling character. Right. I mean, I, when are I, we I don't just going to give they're... Michael K. Williams his own HBO show? Right? Give, it, like... give him all of HBO. Right. Just get, give it to him. The right. whole thing. Michael <laughs> K. Williams. <laughs> the Michael K. Williams night. The Michael K. Williams show. Mm-hmm. You, you can do, like, the Michael K. Williams show, which is, you know, a family comedy. The Michael K. Williams news hour. Right. Williams, which is... <laughs> Michael K. does the weather. <laughs> I would totally watch Michael K. Williams <laughs> read the weather. That but, would be amazing. But on the subject of uh, Boardwalk Empire as a whole, I think we'll just have to go with different different strokes of different folks. Sure. And I mean, I, but I, th- I think it's a show that reveals a useful dividing line between us, which is mm-hmm. there are certain forms that really get you, and I am... I, I'm you're much more of a broad strokes person and I'm a crazy detail person right I'm looking for like the one line the one little through thread you know I mean mm-hmm. I'm I, I I think I'm a somewhat more fussy critic than you are um maybe yeah and I'm, not, I'm not saying that is sort of um I think that's sort of value neutral right yeah but I probably. I am less attracted to archetype than to innovation even if it's small and Mm -hmm. i'll keep watching boardwalk empire for margaret and for chalky and for richard but i don't care about the main show anymore right i i think we can um simplify it even quicker down to the fact that just i like gangster movies i like gangster flicks and they have the right amount of Raw emotion and guns going off and snappy dialogue. Right, and I'm not saying... I mean, I like certain gangster movies. Um, I think that... Oh, this is... um, Public Enemy, Michael Mann's John Dillinger movie. Mm, With Johnny Depp. Amazing. And in certain cases, a really gorgeous use of digital. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the gunfights are, like, pretty super brutal. Um... I get my Channing Tatum fix right at the beginning is pretty boy Floyd, which makes me happy. Um, like a minute and a half and then he dies. Right. Um, uh, Marion Cotillard is woefully miscast. Like girlfriend is not Cherokee. Let's just be clear. <laughs> um, but you know, I can be won over, mm-hmm. but oh, it of course. takes a certain something. Sure. Um, how do you feel about the characterization of movies being guy movies? Quote unquote. Do you, do you disapprove of the label? Well, the thing is, I think it's kind of a, I mean, if you'll pardon my French, I think it's kind of a bullshit label because one of my pet peeves sort of as someone who surveys the cultural landscape is that sort of male characters and action and like male superheroes are a default setting, right? Like women are expected to, you know, even if these sort of manly movies or manly TV shows don't have anything to offer us in particular or don't have 
you know, strong female characters. Women are sort of, it's assumed that we're going to show up anyway, that we're not going to be sort of aggressive advocates for seeing ourselves on screen. But, you know, it's totally excusable for men to just totally ignore chick flicks or shows with TV shows with female main characters. Like, mm. we are expected to consume your culture and without sort of any reciprocal consideration. And so, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of sort of manly stuff that I like a lot. But oh, sure. it is frustrating to me when people are like, female main characters, Ugh, I'm not consuming that. Which I think, you know, I mean, I don't know if you read GQ's Fall Television Guide, which was... That, a- it was really funny. Right, the, but it's let's- terrible, right? I mean, it's funny, but, I mean, it's this is a guide that starts out saying that, you know, if you look at cable, you see what men want. You want shows that are intelligent, the characters talk to each other like adults, the sex looks like sex, the violence is realistic. And then it goes through and is like... Watch this comedy because it's dumb. Watch this comedy if you like, like, watch this show if you like Asian chicks. Watch this show if, like, mouthy Indian broads are your thing. Watch this show because, like, there's bikinis. If you think Mindy Kaling will get you off, watch this show. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, I wish I was paraphrasing, but I'm not actually. No, I know you're not. I, Um, I read the thing. I expect more from GQ, typically. Right, and, but the thing is, like, the show, you know, this is a guy that insists that television hates the scrotally endowed. That was the word, um, the phrase. Um, and, you know, if you look at television, there are these shows with lead female characters that just love men and have great depictions of men and masculinity, right? Like, Parks and Recreation gets treated as if it's this, like, girl comedy. When Ron not, Does it? To a certain extent, I think so. I'm not so. sure it does. I, I Maybe you and I have been reading different blogs, but that's kind of gender neutral to me. Yeah, Leslie Nope is the main character, but as you were just saying, Ron Swanson, go on with that. Right, but I think character. like I do think there's this tendency to to where it would be sort of unimaginable for women to say like I can't relate to the show because there's a male main character, right? Or like I can't relate to this movie because the main character is a guy. You that's hear just... that all the time. There's too much. Again, I'm giving myself over to stereotype here, but there's too much killing in this movie too much shit blowing up it's where a guy like movie. name name me like one thing where there's been a popular response like that popular response like that i demand specifics you can't just speak in archetypes when i i'm att- I'm, I'm attempting not to this is my <laughs> this is as earnest as i get i don't know uh the easy examples like bad boys 2 michael bay actioners sure but like, stuff like, like that. but michael bay's big broad stuff like nobody would ever expect Nobody ever says about Transformers, right? Like, this is a guy movie. Even well, though they it's a constantly movie... talk about how misogynistic it is. Well, that's, that's true, different. but women are still expected to, like, show up. You know? I mean, it's a movie that is... Uh, yeah, well, that's true. Right. PG-13 Michael Bay is a little bit different than R-rated Michael sure, Bay. Sure, absolutely. Um, and I think, like, R-rated movies in general are a special sort of weird case, in part because there aren't that many of them being mm-hmm. made anymore, you know? Okay. We have this sort of rush to PG-13 because that's where all the money is. But, you know, I think that men have a license to be much more dismissive of culture that centers on women than... I mean, Hollywood expects men not to show up for a culture that is centered on women, but it expects women to show up for a lot of culture that's centered on men. Oh, that's hard to argue. I, I'm yeah. definitely not arguing with that. It, it, that would be like if I were arguing that there aren't, if not racist, racial um, motivations behind, like, who gets selected to play, like, the male lead opposite right. hot, young, white female actress in yeah. X movie. I mean, yeah, so, of, of course, like... Um, 
I mean, I, I would also it's... say that I think like dick flicks, if that we're going to call them that, boy mm-hmm. movies, are generally less critically reviled than chick flicks, right? Like chick flick is sort of an embarrassing designation, right? Mm-hmm. It's like romantic comedies that are terrible. I think that movies aimed at men even if they're like sort of dumbly aimed at men and get a little bit of critical leeway that like romantic comedies don't. It's res- I mean, if hmm. someone shoots, it's like respectable to shoot a gun, but not to angst over your romantic life. Well, I think that's because it's done so badly so often as is shooting a gun. I, I'm not sure I'm convinced. I mean, we can have a long goddamn list that goes on for eons about all the bad romantic comedies you and I've seen and how they're panned maliciously and deservedly. But wouldn't you say that something like The Expendables gets a little bit more serious attention and like thought about what they're trying to do? No. Nobody's thinking about what The Expendables dose is doing. Mm, I think there is a lot more criticism written of something like The Expendables than of your average romantic comedy. Like, there is consideration extended. I'm not saying that it's all positive or that it's raves or that it's treated like it's art, but people treat it as if it's a worthy subject for some consideration. I think there was as much consideration extended towards that as there was Valentine's Day. And I think, and those two are comparable. I don't think I'm making a, a false comparison here. I, again, that's possible. There's so much of it is perception. We don't have data or charts in front of us right sure. now. But I do think you're giving dick flicks a little bit too much credit. But but again, I'm not debating that there is sexist and oftentimes racist mentality behind Hollywood sure. marketing. That that's not that's not debatable. Yeah, yeah. Um, but. I guess we're talking about cultural stigma at this point, and that is hard to quantify. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Before we sign off, Mob Doctor, or The Mob Doctor, <laughs> whatever the title is, just premiered on Fox this week. I haven't seen it. I was told by a friend who's seen the screener that he would be hugely disappointed in me if I didn't give it a one-sentence review of Scorn. Fortunately, I didn't have time to do that this week because, you know, Romney shit. But you tell me, in one sentence, what do you think of The Mob Doctor? And then you can elaborate if you want. I just want you to crystallize it in, like, one sentence. Grace Devlin is very pretty, but she is not very smart. Uh, but seriously, now tell me a little bit more about sure. the TV show. Um, so, Jordana Spiro, <laughs> who many of us know and love from TBS's sitcom My Boys, plays... Grace Devlin, whose name has both angelicness and evil in it, um, plays a Chicago surgeon um, whose brother, because he is a moron, got himself in trouble with the Chicago mafia. Grace basically offered up her services to bail him out. We meet her pulling a screwdriver out of the head of a somewhat dumb mafiosi whom she cautions that next time it's probably better not to rob a liquor, rob a hardware store drunk, which I think is life advice that all of us can profit from. Um, and then, you know, I mean, this is a show where she's given a way out. I mean, she's literally told you can leave Chicago and the mafia will not follow you. And she says, but my home and declines to leave. Um, who doesn't want to leave Chicago? Uh, you know, it's, I... there, there are worse options uh, as WC Field said on the whole, I'd rather be in Philadelphia, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is on his gravestone, which I think is kind of badass. But, um, 
you know. I didn't know it was on his gravestone. That's great. Like Josh Berman, who created the show, is you know a guy who I think has good intentions and has made good television for women in the past. Um, what else has he made? Um, Drop Dead Diva on Lifetime, which uh-huh. I really enjoy. He worked on Bones for a long time. I mean. You know, he is a man who just loves female characters and female leads. And I think really, I think he wants to create a female anti-hero. And I wish more people had that intention and that interest. That said, I the pilot at least is scrambling so hard to make its premise viable that the show itself doesn't entirely work. I mean, I think mm-hmm. if she had been, and I think it gets at something interesting, which is that we're much more comfortable presenting men as sort of venal and fascinating than we are with women. And so at least in the pilot, Mob Doctor starts out with trying to convince us that Grace is a good person. And I think it would be a more interesting show if she was just an amoral person, if she'd grown up in a mafia family. Right. I'd watch you know, that show. I mean, I actually think an arc from sort of amorality and potential evil towards sort of guilt and an attempt to get out would be a much more viable arc than her starting out as a good person. Right. This And sort of getting pulled in by plot me- mechanics rather than her own conscience. And so, you know, I would love more shows about complicated women on television. I just wish people were more willing to start with the premise that, like, sometimes women are kind of evil or venal or do bad things. Oh, ab- absolutely. And, uh, well, we have to turn to HBO for that. But this is an hour-long uh, character-driven fox drama. fox drama. Okay, so it's not dramedy. I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> it's a whatever I, I, it may, whatever else it may sound like. Uh, it is not, in fact, a dramedy. I, um, that kind of chases me away. I, I don't. If it's going to be as pathetic as you say, I don't want it to be humorless. <laughs> well, it's not humorless. It's just not inherently funny. Oh, that's um, fair enough. But so basically, the motivating force behind this sh- show, uh, in the narrative, is because he's a moron. That's yeah. the brother. Yeah. Sounds great. There is a really, really funny lesbian butcher who looks like Valerie Bertinelli joke. So there's some virtues there. It's not completely virtueless. And I mean, Spiro is really fun. I think she's a good young actress who should be more famous than she is. I just don't think this is going to be the show to get her there. Oh, well, hopefully she'll get another big break maybe on CBS. I don't know. What are the good networks these days? (laughs) CBS is successful. I'm not sure that's the same thing as good, but we shall see. Well, Alyssa, we got to get going. More Romney stuff to blog about, I guess. Romney shambles. (laughs) But thank you so much for coming on the show. Always a pleasure. Uh, Everybody, have a good morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever you're listening to us. Take care.